You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. U.S. authorities warn that North Korea's Kim Suki APT is out and about and bent on espionage, with a little cryptojacking on the side. As the U.S. elections enter their endgame, observers point out that the appearance of hacking can be just as effective for foreign influence operations as the reality. CISA continues to tweet rumor control and election reassurance. Joe Kerrigan shares developments in end-to-end encryption. Our guest is Billyanna Lilly from RAND on Russia's strategic messaging on social media and the disinformation that may be part of it. Big Tech returns to Capitol Hill and another guilty plea in the strange case of eBay-related cyber-stalking. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the FBI, and U.S. Cyber Command yesterday issued an alert detailing the tactics, techniques, and procedures being used by North Korea's Kim Suki Group, a cyber espionage operation of that country's hidden Cobra outfit. The Kim Suki APT has been around, the agencies think, since 2012, and they think spear phishing is the way it typically gains its initial access to its victims. It also uses waterholing and other social engineering techniques to establish itself. Kim Suki's collection focuses on individuals and organizations in South Korea. Japan, and the United States, and the intelligence requirements it seeks to meet involve foreign and national security policy that affect the Korean peninsula, especially with respect to nuclear policy and sanctions against the DPRK. The targets are either individual subject matter experts, think tanks, or South Korean government agencies. Should you be one of those targets, CISA, the FBI, and Cyber Command's Cyber National Mission Force recommend that you sharpen your defenses, move to a higher state of awareness, and up your game with respect to security awareness training and multi-factor authentication. That's actually good advice to anyone at any time, but it has particular salience if you're in the crosshairs of the Kimsuki group. The operators have in the past posed as South Korean journalists and initiated contact with their targets under the guise of interview requests. Most of the initial preparation has been benign, 
and designed to chum the waters for the eventual phishing email. The hook has often been baby shark malware. In addition to its interests in policy, Kimsuki has also shown a characteristically North Korean interest in theft, as Pyongyang doesn't pass up an opportunity to pull in revenue to redress its chronic financial woes that international sanctions have induced in the pariah state. It's not only think tanks and government agencies that get attention, but cryptocurrency firms and exchanges as well. And the APT is also known to engage in cryptojacking, installing coin miners on its victims' systems. So, Kimsuki's remit extends to both traditional espionage and apparently to revenue-generating cybercrime. Forewarned is forearmed. The Wall Street Journal, citing Facebook, says that with respect to election interference, appearance is more important than reality. You don't have to actually have hacked anything to have an effect as long as people think you did. The consensus now, for example, is that the Iranian actors who impersonated the Proud Boys to send out threatening emails earlier this month had no special access to voter databases, although they said they did. It was enough that they could make people think they did and that they could associate the Trump campaign with some discreditable and not particularly plausible threats of violence. If your goal is just disruption and the creation of doubt or suspicion— and Tehran seems to have adopted a kind of junior achievement version of Moscow's playbook with respect to the current U.S. elections, then you need not have actually done anything at all. It's disinformation as scareware. CISA Director Krebs has been tweeting advice and reassurance about election security in the few remaining days before voting concludes on Tuesday. Among the points he makes is that website defacements like the one the Trump campaign briefly sustained are just petty larceny noise of very little consequence. Those defacements, according to TechCrunch, were at the hands of altcoin scammers. Big Tech begins its latest round of appearances before the U.S. Senate today. Forbes predicts a lousy day for Facebook's Zuckerberg and Twitter's Dorsey. At issue in this round is the future of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, a law that gives online platforms the normally inconsistent protections of both a publisher, who can pick, choose, and moderate content, and a neutral public square, which doesn't. We're simplifying, but in broad outline, that's what Section 230 does. Senators are believed likely to express skepticism over online platforms' commitment to operating in a viewpoint-neutral way, or at least within as viewpoint-neutral a way as consensus deems possible. From such preliminary versions of their prepared marks as has become available, here's roughly how the two high-profile social media companies are expected to come out of the gate. Mr. Dorsey is expected to take a hard line against any changes to Section 230, citing it as an essential protection for Internet speech. Mr. Zuckerberg is believed to be more flexible, talking about the value of Section 230, but acknowledging that maybe it could do with some modifications to bring it up to date. His moderation has already led tech dirt, at least, to sneer at him as a sellout. There's been another guilty plea in the very strange cyber-stalking case involving people who formerly worked for eBay. Reuters reports that Philip Cook, who'd been a supervisor of security operations at eBay's European and Asian offices, entered a guilty plea to conspiracy charges of cyber-stalking and witness tampering. Mr. Cook is among seven defendants charged in the case involving harassment 
of a Massachusetts couple whose mom-and-pop online auction newsletter displeased the eBay brass. They're alleged to have harassed the couple on Twitter, had raunchy adult material delivered to their home in discreditable ways, and to have sent them disturbing packages like a bloody Halloween pig mask. Why the couple aroused so much ire among eBay's leadership is part of the mystery. Their newsletters seemed only occasionally and then mildly critical of the online auction giant. Skins must have been pretty thin around San Jose. Two more guilty pleas in the case are expected this week. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Biliana Lilly is a Pardee Fellow at the RAND Corporation, where she's a policy analyst on cybersecurity, disinformation, information warfare, Russian foreign policy, and NATO. She's the co-author of the recently published research titled Defending the 2020 U.S. Elections and Beyond, Hunting Russian Trolls on Twitter and Reddit with AI. For the Russian government, this is a part of Russia's strategy of warfare. And various experts and governments have described this strategy with different terms. Some have called it political warfare. Others have called it hybrid warfare, hostile measures, the Gerasimov Doctrine, you name it. But the Russians use a specific term in their um, doctrine, which is in Russian, informacionne protivoborstvo. And we don't really have a direct translation in English, but usually we will translate it as information confrontation or information warfare. And disinformation in this particular strategy is a tool of warfare. And it aims to create chaos among us and divide us. And, and in the Russian mindset, this is a way to coerce a state and achieve information superiority over the adversary. 
and that is why my um, my awesome co-author Florentina Wandu on this research and I decided to tackle the topic. We thought it was important enough to do that. Now you you're using the term Russian troll here, which which is, of course is you know has has some baggage. Um, mm-hmm. it does does the model specifically is it able to differentiate? Um, just a, a, a Russian native attempting to speak in English, or can it actually dig deeper into the content for the specific type of content that that content we would describe as being trolling? Yes, it differentiates between trolls and non-native English speakers, specifically Russian. Yes, we did our hmm. model uh, in several steps and made sure that the model differentiates between actual Russian trolls and actual Russian speakers who still decides to generate content in English. And we used, for that, we used several different data sets to train our model. And one of them specifically to make this distinction between the, the Russian writing in English and the troll writing in English uh, is that we use the model of um, Russians who have written essays in English and those Russians are native Russian speakers and they write in English as a second language. So the model was trained on exactly identifying the linguistic features that a Russian will likely not get entirely right when writing in English based on that data set. And so where do you hope this goes next? Is this something you, you're all going to, to put out in the world? Or are you going to share this? Oh, absolutely, yes. We are planning, so what we published uh, right now was a short blog, and we are writing a more detailed analysis, a detailed paper that also describes uh, every step of the process. And we also plan on making our uh, data set and all the the analysis that we run public as well. And we hope that um, social media companies could benefit from this. Um, maybe they're already using some analysis like this or some algorithm and model like this. But we, um, as you know, um, Facebook and Twitter and other social platforms, when they release information about accounts they have taken down, they don't really usually tell us exactly how they have identified those accounts. They say that they use technical indicators, but this is we don't really know whether maybe they're already applying a model like this. And maybe that's why when we trained our model on data already released by Twitter, um, maybe our model shows at some such high accuracy and precision because exactly Twitter used a very similar model to identify those profiles. We don't really know for sure. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, um, I, I guess I'm looking forward to having a, a browser plug-in or something like that that can you know, tell me instantly if, who, who I'm dealing with, whether or not they're a troll or not. That would be fantastic. I think that would be a step in the right direction. If we could get to that level, that would make me so happy. That's Biliana Lilly from the Rand Corporation. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, Interesting article uh, you brought to my attention. This was over on the ZDNet uh, website, and it's titled, The Encryption War is On Again, and This Time Government Has a New Strategy, written by Steve Ranger. Right. Uh, Joe, uh, another round in the crypto wars? What's the latest here? So... This is talking about end-to-end encryption, which is an application that allows me to send information to you uh, with nobody in the middle being able to read it. Uh, so we share our our keys and then we uh, our public keys, and then we can send each other messages. Uh, and there is no hope of decrypting it, at least not without finding some vulnerability or knowing knowing the keys. Right. So it's reasonably right. secure. Well, these seven governments: this is the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and now India and Japan are worried about the use of end-to-end encryption, and they are trying to persuade big tech companies to reduce the level of security that they offer to their customers, according to the article. Hmm. Um, And they start off the opening statement, we, the undersigned, support strong encryption. And they, they, they agree that it is important to protecting privacy, data, intellectual property, trade secrets, cybersecurity, and in repressive states, it protects journalism, human rights, and defenders of other... Uh, vulnerable people. Uh, yeah. And then it goes into the caveat <laughs> that we, quote, we urge the industry to address serious concerns where encryption is applied in a way that wholly precludes any legal access to content, right? This is hmm. what we call the lawful intercept problem, right? Right, so, right. In other words, I want to be able to listen in on the conversation as a government person, like I can, like I used to be able to do with phone calls. I could go out and get a wiretap warrant and listen to what bad guys were saying to each other or what people I thought were bad guys were saying to each other. Right. Um, the issue here is that these governments are looking for essentially a backdoor. So let's let's come up with a, a theoretical uh, company, Dave. It's called Joe's Special Encryption Messenger, right? Uh, (laughs) and we'll call it SEM, Special Encryption Messenger, Joe's SEM. All right. So let's say that Joe's SEM is an application that I developed that allows people to encrypt their communication end-to-end, but also requires that it is applied with a key that I I maintain so that I can, if necessary, read the messages, okay? Mm -hmm. So first off, let's say that, um, let's look at the problems that creates. Number one, let's look at the, the use case that the government believes will happen. The people can communicate privately until such a time as the government goes, oh, we think these people are are communicating illegal stuff. And they always talk about the four horsemen of the infopocalypse. These are software pirates, organized crime, child abuse, image purveyors, and terrorists. These are what they say. Mm -hmm. We need to to watch out for these guys because these guys are bad. And nobody says these guys are good guys, right? Right. Kind of why they- We're all in agreement. Right. All those things are bad. These are horrible people. And- (laughs) Right, right. uh, so the government comes to me and says, hey, Joe, uh, we noticed that this this bad guy is using your your uh, communication thing. Give us the information between this bad guy and this bad guy. And I can do that, right? All mm-hmm. right, well, that's fine. That's a lawful intercept in the U.S. But what if my messages are being sent or the my app is being used in a, in a country like Iran or in a country like North Korea or in a country like uh, maybe even China where they do a lot of surveillance of their people? And the... The government comes to me and says, uh, hey, Joe, we notice these guys are are participating in illegal activity. Now, this is not something like software piracy, organized crime, uh, child sexual exploitation images, or terrorism. This is just dissidents. 
what we would look at in America as being something that would be perfectly lawful. How do I right. know? Now I have to make the decision of whether or not I want to to help this government or that government. That puts a, I think that puts an undue burden on me. There's actually no mention in this article about what kind of protections that these governments are offering to country or to uh, to companies in these in these countries. That's that's issue number one. Issue number two is what happens if my key gets loose, right? This is just another mm -hmm. uh, another surface area, right? Another another point of attack. Now somebody if somebody knows that I have I have the keys that can de decrypt all the communication. I'm going to become a big target. They're going to, if they get that if they get that information, if they get that key, that private key that encrypts all the traffic, then uh, they're going to have access to it. Or even if they just get a collection of keys, it's still they're still going to have access to the all the communication. And finally, my other big point is while I say I might trust the U.S. government now for lawful intercept purposes, that doesn't necessarily mean I trust them in the future or and in perpetuity, right? Yeah. That, that's a bit future proofing the the communication the security of communication is is very important and people need to realize that the world is dynamic <laughs> things change yeah it's interesting to me that um they're, they're still coming at this they've added right. a couple of new countries who've joined in japan and india yep um and it so it seems to me like it's it's almost a it's a pr effort here where they're rather than saying and and, and uh, they point this out in the article. Rather than saying "do something or else," yep, they're absolutely. Saying, um, they're saying, "Hey, rather than us coming up with a solution, we would really love it if you tech companies would come up with a solution to this. Be, be our pals, be our friends." Right. I, <laughs> right it it right. smacks me like they're waiting. They're waiting for something to happen, and then they're going to say, "If only the tech companies had let us see the information, we could have prevented yeah. this." Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. It's everywhere you want to be. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Faziri, Kelsey Bond, Kim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. 
SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 